0: Isaiah 58, 1 through 12, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It reads this, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare it to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like this, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose? A day for a person to humble himself, Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring in the homeless into your house, the homeless poor into your house, When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light break forth, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say. Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as the noonday as the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. I want to preach to you this morning. On this text, under the theme, the goodness of good works. The goodness of good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we study it. Help me as I preach it, that I preach your word, not merely my own own ideas. You would open our hearts to this passage, shape us, and mold us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I heard someone talk about a mango tree, they talked about how interesting a mango tree is in this way. When a branch breaks, something interesting happens. All of the nutrients in that tree go to that broken branch. The entire tree, the rest of the tree, stops its growth until that branch is healed and begins to grow again itself, and then the tree grows Together, this morning we come to Isaiah fifty-eight, and we see God's desire for us to love and care for the broken in our church. Those who have needs in our church are our needs. The weak in our church are our uh, our people. We are called to come around to love, to pour ourselves out too. And in communities like ours, all across America, there is. Suffering, fears, fears of violence, fears of a lack of money, fears of their kids dropping out of school, going to the streets. There's a lack of Christian neighbors, often in the neighborhoods. There's a lack of mentors. The effects of drug abuse often contribute to to child neglect and sometimes even child abuse. A good friend of mine, Sean, was telling me just recently about how his mother, who uh, was codependent on drugs, um, would abuse him when she was high, and she was high every day. And he talked about the house that he grew up in, and he just recently visited there, and he walked into this little house, and he said he just fell apart into tears as he saw the bathroom where he would hide from his mother. He said, he said, people don't understand this when I try to tell them what happened to me, but he said, literally every day uh, in that house, from the time I, uh, of my earliest memory until I was 11 years old, I was abused every, uh, he said, I was tortured every day. And I wonder how many Sean's are right around us. You know, I think our concern, I think I can speak on behalf of us, Our concern is that others, including ourselves at times, could go about our religious duties. In Isaiah 58, it's fasting. We can go to church, do our good things. We can go about our religious duties and then call it a day. And otherwise go back to our cushy lives. And not really pour ourselves out not spend ourselves on behalf of the weak, those who have, have needs, those who are hurting. And this was actually Israel's issue. So we're in Isaiah 58 this morning, and here we see that Israel has been going about their religious duties. They're fasting. We're going to get into this. But all the while, they're neglecting the poor, in favor of a life of self-service. And so immediately in verse 1, we get this, the sense of the text. It's a call to repentance. He says in verse 1, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Everybody say, house of Jacob. This is a nickname for Israel. Israel was at this time this constituted people of God, this ethnic group of people. Jews lived in Israel in what was called the promised land and God had given them the law and the blessing of following the law was that they could remain in the land. However, the Jews had over and over uh, failed to be the light to the nations around them. They had failed to follow God's law, and to display the glory of God. And as a result, God was removing them from the promised land. God was the landlord. He said, you failed to keep the covenant, and you got the eviction notice. And he's sending them to Babylon. Here, Isaiah is calling, God is calling, I should say, through Isaiah, the religious hypocrites to repentance, but more than that, this is a beautiful text. In this text, we get an exciting glimpse into the kind of flourishing that awaits the people of God who pour themselves out in love for others. And that's what we want to look at. But before we get to the good stuff, let's look at their problem. Their problem, point number one, their problem was hypocrisy. They seem to be doing all of the right things. Look at verse two. God says, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. They ask of me righteous judgments. They they delight to draw to me. What he's saying is is they claim to seek God. They visibly delight in God. They do all of the things that look like they love God. They even ask for God's justice. They worship God. However, between verse 2 and verse 3, there's a big but. Look at verse 3. They're miserable. They're doing the right things, They're going about their religious duties, church on Sunday, worship team, service, whatever that might be. But, verse 3, they are saying, why are we doing all this stuff if God doesn't see it? Why have we fasted, he says, verse 3, and you, you see it not? We have humbled ourselves. Like, do you see, God, what we have done? We have humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it. See, what's going on is they have been treating God as if he is a genie, and if they go through the right spiritual motions, God is going to reverse this whole Babylon thing. But Babylon is still coming. They're saying, so why are we doing all of this right stuff if we are still being disciplined? And so they have actually, they have no delight in God. They are a miserable people. Their hearts are angry against God. They're blaming God for their situation. They, they are accusing God of injustice. So God tells them what's up in verse 3 and 4. As you're fasting, he says, you're hurting others. Look at verse, the latter half of verse 3 into verse 4. He says, Behold, in the day of your fast, this is God speaking. In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all of your workers. Now, think about this. They're fasting. They're not eating food. They're not feeling, as a result, they're not feeling like working. And so they're overworking their servants. You oppress your workers to make your life extra cushy. Because you're fasting. Oh, I'm fasting before God. All I can do is sit on the couch and watch Netflix. You do everything else because I'm fasting. He says, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. And I can understand that when I don't eat, when you don't eat, especially when Montrell doesn't eat. (laughs) He gets hangry. And so does Eric. I'm going to call all you out this morning. They're not eating, they're irritable. So they're fasting before God, they're neglecting themselves, but he's saying that they're responding with just irritation toward, uh, toward, uh, toward other people, maybe toward their wife, toward their kids, toward their servants, toward their friends, Montreal. No, I'm just playing, I'm just playing. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Now, will not make your voice to be heard on high. It's as if they are ghostly. It's as if they're crying out to God, asking God for help, and God is like, I don't even hear you. Your voice is weak. You are frail. I think of like Marty McFly in Back to the Future when he's looking at his hand, and his hand is starting to uh, fade into nothing. This is, they're losing their sense of self before God. They're hollowed. They're empty. They're nothing. Verse 5. He goes on to say, is, is this really what I want? Outward piety, outward, outwardly doing good, that's what piety means, no, but yet no real goods behind your deeds? Look at verse 5. He asks a rhetorical question. Is such the fast that I chose? A day for a person to humble himself. He's saying this sort of sarcastically. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him like you're going through all the outward, external sort of motions? He says, you're going to call this a fast and a day acceptable to God just because you look so contrite? You see, church, they are depriving themselves of food for the wrong reasons. As a result, they're overworking their, their, their employees. They're irritable, they're missing the point. This morning's Mother's Day, and I'm going to brag on myself for just a moment. I gave my wife some flowers. All right, now, I didn't dress in all pink like Tim Carey did. He, 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 <laughs> wonderful. I want you to take note of his outfit from, from head to toe this morning. Um, but I gave my wife some flowers. Now, that is... That's true, and everything else I'm going to say is completely made up. What if, as I gave my wife these flowers, and she said, oh, thank you, honey. I said, yeah, it's Mother's Day. And she said, oh, it's Mother's, is that why you gave me, just because it's Mother's Day? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, it's just because it's Mother's Day. Do you like them? And she was like, well, it would be nice to know that you actually wanted to buy me some flowers, not that you're just doing it because it's Mother's Day. And I said, look, I hate buying you flowers. I think they are a waste of money. They will be dead in five days. It's just Mother's Day, and it is my duty every Mother's Day to buy you flowers. And then she took the flowers, and she threw them against the wall. And she said, are these the flowers that I have chosen? She says, I don't want your flowers from your hands. I want your flowers from your heart. Hmm. Now, thank, thank the Lord that did not happen this morning. <laughs> but, but I make my point, though. If we just do good things out of duty, we actually despise the very people we claim to serve. So if you're serving on a ministry team in this church out of duty... Alone and your heart's not behind it, you actually despise the people you serve. And the God whose image they represent. So so their solution, their solution is really kind of ironic. What What do they do with this hypocrisy? What do they do about it? Well, the solution is to not give up on ministry. You see, sometimes when we are criticized of, on, in our ministry or maybe in our good deeds, and somebody, uh, it, it just, it, it's just shown that like it's just my duty and I don't really want to do it. We think our solution is, is to just turn off the switch and say, okay, well, I'm done. My heart's not right. I can't serve with the right kind of heart. And so therefore, I'm just stepping aside. What's interesting is that's not the solution. The solution is actually hashtag, I'm going to go Cleveland Cavaliers on you, 2016, hashtag all in. <laughs> the solution is to go all in yeah. with ministry, yeah. with service. Check it out. It's to share with the needy. It's to help the weak. It's to love the broken. Meaning, if you really want to fast, if you want to deprive yourself of something, deprive yourself of you. Look at verse six. Is this not the fast that I chose? Now, I'm going to break this down as we go, okay? So follow with me. First, he says, treat the weak and those who work for you with dignity. Verse six continues to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. He's saying, treat those who work for you with full dignity. Do not oppress your workers. What a call of repentance this would have been for the American slaveholder who went to church on Sundays and went home and oppressed their workers on Sunday afternoons. And even still today, how we might devalue the image of god in those who report to us those who we lead those who work with us for us even this could even include our kids at times to not value their dignity and their respect second he says to serve the poor he goes on verse 7 is it not to share your bread with the hungry Application, open your refrigerators. Uh-oh. In 386, the year 386, Basil of Caesarea was preaching a series of sermons during a great famine throughout Rome. And he saw the rich who had extra food in their homes, and he said this to them: He said, He said, Can you allow food to rot in your homes that you're not going to eat? And, and not, not share that with the poor. What he was saying was, that, was simply this. Like if at, at the end of the week or at the end of the month, uh, if you are pulling, emptying your refrigerator and you're throwing out the rest of the milk and you're throwing out uh, the, the meat that went bad and the cheese that went bad and you're emptying your refrigerator with all the leftovers that you didn't eat, Basil of Caesarea would say something's wrong. Something's wrong. You're putting into the trash What what you what you could have shared with the hungry, with the needy, and maybe not always the the, the starving, but maybe some brothers and sisters in the church who could have come over in need of fellowship. That you you could have shared your food with them. So yeah, we gotta open our refrigerator saints. And this is risky because you got some organic stuff in there. (laughs) You got some stuff that's expensive in there. Is it not to share your bread? And going on, verse 7, bring and hold up, bring the homeless poor into your house. Uh Uh-oh. I think he actually means that. Can I read that again? Correct me if I'm reading it wrong. This is the word of the Lord. And bring the homeless poor into your house. This is an affront to the American dream. My kingdom, my home. To share your house with the homeless, with those in need, with a single mom with maybe a college student who doesn't have enough money to rent a place, with a new believer, with somebody who's struggling to get on their feet, to provide some cheap rent, why did God give you that extra room? Why did he give you that couch? Is it not to share with those who are in need? He goes on when you see the naked, to cover him. Now, we don't typically see naked people running around. I, at least I don't. Sometimes you hear the f- crazy story of somebody was just running naked down through the inner harbor, all right? Clothe him. <laughs> Please. Um, but really, uh, by and large, so nakedness back then was a problem, and it was an issue of shame. You know, you can't afford enough clothes. They're naked. Um, today, you know, shame is real. We do see people walking around with shame. To clothe the naked is to restore dignity to the shamed. To give respect where respect is due. To speak to, to, speak to the shamed with, yeah. with love yeah. and kindness. And not to continue to add on to their shame. Yeah. I think that's what he's saying. And to hide... To not hide yourself from your own flesh. What he's saying here is, is let your heart, that yourself, don't hide yourself from your flesh, your hands. Let your heart match your hands. That's what he's saying. Let your hands match your heart. Let the things that your heart wants to do be seen with your hands. And let, and let the things that are seen with your hands be a manifestation of who you really are. Coming from your heart. That's what he's saying. Be, be who you want Be real. Who, who you are as a redeemed person of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. He's restating this in, in a conditional way now. Now, look, look at this word, if you pour out. Everybody say pour out. Pour out. Uh, the NIV says that, writes this, if you spend yourself. Now, notice, he doesn't say if you give a piece of yourself. He doesn't say if you give one day a week to the soup kitchen. He doesn't say if you just give five dollars to the guy on the corner. But he says if you take the whole of your life, like every bit of who you are, and you pour it all out, you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of of those who have been oppressed. This is totally the opposite of verse 1, where these people are living a self-centered kind of life. See, in verse 1, the problem with the fasting people is that they're doing a piece of themselves. They're giving a small portion, but they're reserving 95% for self-preservation. He's saying that's not the way it goes. It's 100% of who we are, lived on behalf of others. Don't argue with me, argue with the text. A few years before Jesus went to the cross, he walked into the synagogue, and he picked up the scroll, and he found the place in Isaiah where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he read out loud, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's two chapters later, or three chapters later in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. You see, what Israel now has failed to do year after year, to live in this way, to live in such a way that they love the weak and care for the broken Jesus is coming and he's saying, I am doing for Israel what they never did. All of this is fulfilled in me. You are seeing it lived out in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody say amen. We're seeing Christ live it out. He poured himself out in every way. Think of his life. He went to the leper. He went to the prostitute, to the tax collector. He went to the children. He went to the women. He went to those who at the time were the despised of their community. And he poured himself out in love. Every bit of his life, it was like his culture. It wasn't a program that he did. It was who he was. And here we are. The people of Jesus, listen, if you you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are brought into the body of Christ, all right? You are a representative of Jesus. We are saved by grace, not by doing good works, all right? We're saved by his work, his life, his work of redemption. We then are, are not out here as our own little Jesus doing my own thing, but I'm actually in Christ, You see what I'm saying? So when Jesus said, like, I'm fulfilling this, Joel Kurz is in him, and he's fulfilling it on behalf of Joel Kurz. You see how that works? Like, he's our representative head. But here's the thing. Some people then, I think, maybe subconsciously or unintentionally say, well, Jesus did it, so therefore, I don't have to. Jesus lived a life of good works, and so I'm freed now from a life of good works, and I can live a life for myself, because he did. Yes, Jesus did, and don't get it twisted. I'm preaching on the goodness of good works, but we are not saved by good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace through faith, you are saved, not by finish it, good works, lest any man should boast. But, verse 10, we are his workmanship. Hold up. Created in Christ Jesus for? How about, how about that? Like Jesus didn't save us, bring us into him, and, say, and then say, okay, don't worry about uh, the, 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 the life that we are now called to live. Go do your own thing. Live for your own self-preservation. No, he didn't say that. It's always how much more so in the New Covenant. We are the representatives of Christ. Meaning as we live this kind of life that God is, is, is showing uh, us, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, now for us, He's, he's showing us the, the kind of life that brings most glory to God. That makes, the mo- that makes much of Jesus. Now, there's a little bit of a reactionary here to, I think, good works theology. Just dealt with that. There's also sometimes, with some of us, a reactionary to the prosperity gospel. Here's what I mean. Sometimes I think, we think, that there is no blessing attached to good works. See, the problem with the prosperity gospel is they say if you do good things, Uh, God is really going to just kind of hook you up with a bunch of health, wealth, and prosperity and a bunch of cash. And so you do these things to treat God as like a genie to get him to do stuff for you. As a matter of fact, uh, the the hypocrites in verses 1 through 5 are actually a display of the prosperity gospel. So I'm not saying that. But I don't want us to be so reactionary that we don't realize that there are actually blessings that come from good works. So, when we talk about this kind of pouring oneself out, I want to spend the rest of our uh, time here, just a few minutes together, looking at the flourishing that is yours awaiting you as you live in this way. So, this is part number three. I don't know if you've been tracking my parts, if you care. Part number one, let me see if I can give them to you. Part number one was their problem, hypocrisy. Part number two was their solution, serving the poor. Part number three is their blessing, and that is flourishing. Look at verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like dawn. Then shall your light break forth like dawn. Break forth is this word that's used throughout the Hebrew language uh, uh, connected with this idea of gushing water meaning in your darkest moment of gloom water uh, or light like water gushing is going to flood your life yeah. meaning your sun s u n will rise once again verse 10 he restates it if you if here's the condition and then the blessing if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed then Your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. Don't think that Christians are to be gloomy. Don't think that we are supposed to live this kind of life, oh, always serving other people, and I'm so gloomy and living in darkness and sorrow, and I have ashes on my face as I just live my life for the service of others. That's not the picture we receive. He says, "Your gloom will be replaced with uh, uh, as the noonday sun." We are not sad and down, but we are happy and life filled. The remedy for my sadness. The remedy for my spiritual frailty is ironically not to focus on myself more, but the biblical remedy is to focus on others more, to spend myself on behalf of those who are weak. And church, this is true. I mean, just, just you know, look around. Think, think about this. Find the person who's focused only on themselves and see how happy they actually are. They are typically not very pleasant to be around. But if you find the person who's open-handed and generous and always bringing people in and sending people out and feeding and loving and caring for the people around them, these people are like light. They are attractive. You want to be near them. You want to spend time with them. You just want to sit at their feet and be like, can you please teach me all of your wisdom and mentor me? This is the picture. Their light has risen. Their darkness is like the noonday sun. Are you with me? He goes on, second half of verse 8. And your healing shall, speed up, sp- uh, shall spring up speedily. So verse 11 restates this. Satisfy, a satisfied soul in a hard place. Your bones are made strong. This is this picture of Healing. Uh, meaning the person who is a hypocrite is, is weak and miserable, but he's saying if you have true service to others, uh, you will be solid and have gravity and weight and, and life. Healing continues in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be, be recalled, re, the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. Now, this is a grand vision for Jerusalem to be rebuilt as they live their life in service for others, the literal rebuilding of walls and streets. But it actually, Jerusalem has a far greater reality of this new Jerusalem that we still await, this coming kingdom of God that is currently invisible now, that is experienced here in the church and and as we go and love like Christ, but one day it will come physically, all right? Meaning, the one-to-one direct correlation application is not necessarily Baltimore City. He's not saying if you do these things that Baltimore City will have new walls built and new streets paved as bad as we need them. (laughs) Now, new walls built and new streets paved may be part of us spending ourselves out, but that's not really the blessing that, that is attached here. The blessing here is attached to the kingdom of God, which is currently invisible, meaning There is a flourishing coming that that displays the kingdom of God. Uh, We are signposts of His kingdom, and we see it more and more and more as we live in this way. Are you with me? Meaning in the local church, we see a real flourishing that is attractive and beautiful. Go back to verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Your righteousness shall go before you. Uh, 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 the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Meaning, no more will nations mock you. Or, I'm sorry, no more will nat- nations mock God because of your hypocrisy, he's saying, because you're now displaying the glory of God. Verse 9. Blessings continue. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. What this is saying is that that we will have a renewed fellowship with God. Like in our sin, God doesn't hear our prayers. In our hypocrisy. Now, we're saved by grace. We haven't lost our salvation. But sin can destroy the fellowship, that intimacy between us and God. And as we turn in repentance, God hears us again. That's what he's saying. Verse 9 continues, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, meaning if you turn from your judgmentalism, if you stop uh, blaming the poor for being poor, if you stop blaming the broken for being broken, if you stop blaming other people for your own sins and take responsibility, he's saying you will be freed from this heavy yoke. And you're freeing others from this heavy yoke. It's, it's, the, the freeing is the blessing there. Now, does this sound good to anybody? Does this kind of life, does this, these kinds of blessings, does this sound good to anybody? Again, we can contrast this, which I won't take time to, I'm out of time. We can contrast this with uh, uh, verses one through five. The hypocrites who are angry, But then we see those who are repentant in verses 8 through 12, living themselves for others who are living radiant lives. As Christ then, who fulfills this, unleashes his disciples in Matthew 28, forms the church, he gives the church its mission, which is what? The great commission to make disciples. He doesn't say do-gooders. But disciples, meaning, by the way, don't take this and think that we're talking about just being a do-gooder. You know, somebody like, comes with your chin up and like, oh, I'm going to save the day in Baltimore City today. That's, not, that's, that's narrow-minded, one-sided. That's not what he's talking about. Like, even if you're broke in this room and a Christian, this applies to you as well. Meaning, every one of Jesus' disciples has been given this call to stewardship. And it's very likely that you have something, maybe physical or intangible, that somebody else needs. So part of being a disciple of Jesus, it's not the whole of it, but part of being a disciple of Jesus is to love God. Well, the whole of it is to love God and love others. Part of loving others is to spend yourself on behalf of the weak. Are you with me? It's really just that simple. As we close... In the year 2007, I was personally wrestling with my own desire to move to Baltimore City uh, and to begin planting a church. I was living outside the city in Maryland at the time and, and had just more and more just thinking about church planting or being in Baltimore and was wrestling with that. Because also at the time, all of the literature on church planting was like, find the fastest growing city and find where people are moving in, and where there's a high income level, and move there. So, you know, there are people talking about Vegas, and Tampa, and Jacksonville. And so I kind of briefly, like, did a search on some of those cities. But, but Baltimore was familiar to me. I knew Baltimore City. And, and part of the, the, my, my challenge was the familiarity of it. I knew Baltimore City. And I knew it wasn't going to be easy. I knew it would be hard. And so, and, and I wondered, too, if, if, if I could even... Have a, have a ministry in Baltimore City. And so I was praying one morning, and I, I, I came across, I was praying through Isaiah, and I came across Isaiah 58, and I was sitting on the floor in my living room, and I read this very passage, Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12, and I remember the moment when I read verse 10, 11, and 12, and it was just, something clicked for me. Let me read that again to you. I read it out of the NIV, so I'm going to read it from the NIV here. uh, This is what I read. If you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And in that moment, in in my sanctified imagination, as the old preachers used to say, I, I thought of this picture of like a garden just kind of bursting through the concrete of Baltimore City. And then one year later, my wife and I moved into Baltimore City, and we, we began a Bible study. And would you believe that we called that Bible study the garden? And fourteen years later, here we are. A whole church. Now we are called as a church to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And part of that means disciples who spend themselves on behalf of those who are weak. I just want to praise God for the fact that we have a community that God has put together and for for years now. We've we've seen a community where people are saved from their sins and come through the waters of baptism so often in this church and, and live their lives for Christ and spend themselves for a better cause than others. We've got a whole community of people who have literally opened their homes and their couches to, to the homeless to come in and sleep for the night. We've got a whole community where people, we, we, we've, we've, seen, we've seen hustlers come to Christ and repent and hustle the gospel now. We, we've seen those with substance addiction give up the substances and live for Christ, we've seen a community where where people mentor kids and start nonprofits and uh, start outreach groups to love the broken and the hurting. We have a community of people where where individuals, some of you, drive literally across the city to pick people up for church who can't otherwise get here. Uh, where where people are reading the Bible out loud to those who don't know how to read, uh, uh, flourishing is happening. Uh, we have a community of people who I know are happy in Christ. And more than all of that, the gospel is proclaimed. Christ is cherished and the gospel's being received. My point is this, is we're seeing our light rise in the darkness. It really does. There's real joy in serving the Lord and He brings real flourishing. A few things in application, and we're done. Number one, spend yourself on behalf of the needy as you have opportunity. Spend yourself on the needy as you have opportunity. What I mean by that is the good Samaritan wasn't looking for a program. To my knowledge, he wasn't even going to a program. I don't think he was in the medical profession. He saw a need it's stewardship and he stooped down and used his he spent do you know the story he spent himself he paid for the dude's medical bills hotel bills he gave of his own money for a guy he didn't know it was a man with a need and Jesus said that's the neighbor that you're called to love love your neighbor, open your tables, open your spare bedrooms, open your couches, open your refrigerators to love those who have a need. Secondly, consider what real help looks like as we serve the poor on a broader scale. What I mean by this is sometimes giving away money or serving in a soup kitchen, is good. That has its place. So I would not say that that's never a good thing. What I would say is this, is that there can be a temptation toward false piety. Meaning if I give a dollar, I can go ahead and spend a hundred on myself at the bar tonight. You see what I'm saying? I don't know if that was what Jesus had in mind. So, yes, give as we can, certainly. But I think the picture of generosity is a whole, the whole of our life. You know, it might look like foster care for a child, it might look like taking somebody into your home, it might look like uh, uh, taking on a number of people that you can disciple and, and mentor. It's a culture of how you live your life, it's a culture. You see, you see, like Jesus, for Jesus, it was his culture. Are you with me? Yeah. It's the great commission go into all the world, make disciples, combined with the great commandment love God and love others. And we see that as we live in this way. Lesson number three beware of false piety. Beware of false piety, meaning we don't do it for our glory. We don't do it for the statistics. We don't do it for the praise. And Lord knows, we do not do it for the Instagram. No more selfies. Look at my good deed for the day. Let the world see how generous I have been. Let the left hand not know what the right hand does. Let Instagram not know everything that you do. We don't do it for our glory. We do it because we love Jesus, because Jesus died to save the hurting to heal the broken, to forgive the sinner. This, I believe, is the greatest mercy ministry we can do, is to do it for Jesus because what they need is not just food in their belly, but they need a Savior. And so we do it for the love of Christ. Why? Well, nobody served the poor like Jesus. Amen? Look, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how successful you think you are. Without Jesus, you are broke. You are spiritually bankrupt. But how many of you all know that Jesus made his home among the broken? Jesus moved into our neighborhood. Jesus looked upon us and saw that we were starving. And the bread of heaven came down to earth. And Jesus sat with his disciples and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, This is my body which has been broken for you. Ah, the goodness of his works. Jesus looked down upon us and he saw that we were naked. And He clothed us in His own righteousness. Oh, the goodness of His good works. He died on the cross, taking our shame, taking our guilt in His own body, on the tree, bearing the weight of our punishment. He died. He paid it all. And so all to Him we owe, oh, the goodness of His good works. And three days later, the stone rolled away. And Jesus got up from the dead. The light rises in the darkness. Our gloom will become like the noon day. Ah, the goodness of His good works. Church, do you know this story? Is this your story? I know it's my story. For long, my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, and I went forth, and I followed Thee. Ah, the goodness of His good works. And here we are, church, freed. Freed for good works. And so let our light shine in the darkness. And may His glory be seen as we spend ourselves on behalf of the weak. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Jesus and how He loved us. God, may we be the display of His glory as we love others who are weak and hurting as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.